Welcome back, welcome, welcome to, welcome back to our show. This is Gall, <laughs> and I'm by... Start every episode with a great Gall chuckle. Uh, too many uh, Gall chuckles, and I apologize. Un- no, pl- the chuckles are the the gold of podcasting. Yeah, that's true. Um, I'm Gall, and I'm, I'm joined by, yep, Moses, and... Ted. Ted, and uh, this is Last Refuge of the Incompetent. We are a speculative fiction slash sci-fi show... Uh, every week we pick a different theme, we curate some music, we curate some books and some films, and we talk about those things, and hopefully you enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this, is, this is our second week, and we've been dealing with some behind-the-scenes audio issues. No one needs so to hear that part. No one needs to hear that. <laughs> Golf, stick to the chuckles. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, who wants to tell us what our theme is? Uh, this week's theme is the works of Ursula K. Le Guin. Yes, which um, if you take away the word works and you replace with worlds, oh, it's, yeah. really good, it's, a, it's, it's a really good PBS documentary that you can stream from their website, Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin, if you don't know anything about her. I would also recommend UrsulaKLeGuin.com, which is her own website. Um, and, I mean, she passed away in 2018, but it's a really good website for um, all of her nicks and nacks and bits and bobs. Um, uh, so the way this show is going to work this week is we're going to focus on some big um, works within her ouvoir. She's written, she's written a whole bunch. Um, but we're going to probably talk a little bit about Earthsea. We're going to talk a little bit about the ecumen. And within the ecumen, um, we'll mention the dispossessed and the left hand of darkness. Darkness, and we will uh, talk about the lathe of heaven, both the book and the film, the original film. And we will maybe address um, always coming home, but we will uh, we'll see because <laughs> none of us have read it, but. Um, <laughs> But it's good to maybe like a good 20 to 30 minutes talking about it then, I think. (laughs) It's a speculative fiction show. We should do some speculating (laughs) speculating. on fiction and what it might contain. (laughs) So I'm going to just like give you a very short bio on her and then I'm going to stop talking because I've been talking a lot. Mm -hmm. So she was born in 1929 uh, as Ursula Kroeber. She grew up in Berkeley, California, another... California author that we're talking about. Her parents were anthropologists Alfred Krober and writer Theodora Krober. And they weren't just like 
random anthropologists, anybody is familiar with the world of anthropology, they were kind of a big deal. Um, they kind of established parameters for modern anthropology. Um, she attended Radcliffe, did graduate work at Columbia. She married and met her husband, Charles Le Guin, who's a historian in Paris in 1953. They lived in Portland, Oregon and had three children. Um, she's written a lot, and one of the big things about her is that she started out just writing and couldn't figure out why no anybody wanted to publish her and had a publisher be like, maybe you should do some sci-fi, and she was like, sci-fi? And then that's kind of how she ended up in that world. Um, her fantasy novel, World of Earthsea, is kind of a big deal in the world of YA fantasy, and uh, her like first major groundbreaking work of sci-fi was The Left Hand of Darkness. And that's it for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, she, her approach to sci-fi is very anthropological. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's great. It makes for a really engrossing read. So The Left Hand of Darkness in particular is a tale about uh, a world uh, with completely fluid gender. That is, most of the time, the people in the world, they don't have a, a gender. And then once a month, they go into their reproductive cycle, which is called Kemmer in the book. Uh, and then kind of at random, they'll, their bodies will turn either into like, you know, the egg-bearing gender or the, the sperm-bearing gender. And then after Kemmer is over, then they, they go back to their regular ungendered existence. And the book is really about like the the anthropological polit what their political system is like in a in a world where they don't have that gender dynamic uh and it's really good and then it's sold from the perspective of uh kind of like uh, an envoy or an emissary from another world who's there to like record what's going on in this planet uh and uh it he lets us know that this world is very is unique. It's the only one without gender. All the other worlds have gender. He has gender. And so um, in this world, he's a freak. Everyone's like, oh, yeah. this pervert who's always in reproductive mode. Gross. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, um, I think that was the first Ursula K. Le Guin book I read. And I read that I'm, I'm going to, real sci-fi freaks are going to be offended that I said this, but I only like read it within the last five years, but then I read all of her other no, no, stuff afterwards. Um, but no it was time. such a, that's true. It was such a cool, like, it was really cool that she was able to put herself in this space where the idea of gender was like, that he was the freak, that he was yeah. the pervert. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone was just looking at him like, you got to, it's like that he was walking around with an erection to everyone. It's like, hey, just put it away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, how, that's how he's treated. Yeah. Um, it's also an ice planet, and so that's kind of a nice, another, she, oh, yeah. she uh, explores like the anthropological consequences of it just being too cold to have yeah. a big, huge war or anything. So everything's all political intrigue and subterfuge, uh, uh, which is separate from the gender part, but it's all interwoven into all these. And there's a bunch of weird psychedelic stuff too. It's a great book. Yeah, it's a really good book. And I would recommend, if you've never read any Ursula Killigan, I would recommend starting with that I, personally. Actually, so as much as I love that book a lot, uh, at first, it is pretty dense. Like it is certainly getting through the first few chapters is kind of, oh. you know, I feel like it's, a, it's slow starting. I like The Dispossessed a little more, which is more about, anarchy and physics <laughs> maybe that's just yeah me. the dispossessed 
I feel like it's slightly more accessible from the beginning, but I think they're both masterpieces. I wonder if that's maybe like a gender thing. Only to, I mean, if people can't tell, I am female. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Moses is not. <laughs> so maybe, I mean, I love The Dispossessed, but I think The Left Hand of Darkness, reading it as a woman, I was like, oh, what? <laughs> what? I, well, I've, I'm basing this recommendation on feedback I've heard from people I've recommended the book to, and uh, across across the gender board, that I had I've had both the the response of loved it immediately, or you know I had to put it down after a few chapters because it was too boring. Moses Marsh crapping on my theories. <laughs> yeah, but take that. To certainly. <laughs> The Dispossessed is certainly the book I see people recommending uh, the most of her works, but I think that might be also largely because it's um, like more explicitly political than The Left Hand of Darkness. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was. One thing I do want to make sure we mention, or maybe you were about to say, say it, Ted, or maybe not. Did I just step <laughs> on your words? I was about <laughs> to say something, but we'll oh, find out what it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did want to say that like, two major themes that come up in all of her writing is is the fact I mean she was a lifelong Taoist and also her dad was an anthropologist and she really cared about those two things and they pop up in all of her works yeah she actually wrote a translation of the Tao Te Ching which is a pretty I believe that's one of the translations I read uh it's a good one uh for you know your lay reader (laughs) um (laughs) and yeah the (laughs) <laughs> if listeners haven't already picked up, Ted is better than you. <laughs> That's the moral of the Dow. <laughs> Ted's just um, <laughs> Ted's just thrown out references left and right. But um the 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 series that both Left Hand of Darkness and the Dispossessed um are part of, which is sometimes called the Hainish cycle or the Acumen novels, um, are very much her her background and her parents being anthropologists really really comes through because most of the books are centered around characters who are these envoys from uh, the Acumen, this association of different worlds, and they're all sort of diplomat ethnographers. Um, They come to these planets and try to figure out how their societies work. Um, And uh, do you want me to repeat the thing I didn't already say? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yes, Ted. Yeah, tell me what you Oh, this is like like League of Heaven. We're already, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're living in the past. This is my dream. Time to have some effective conversations. so yeah, you can tell a lot of her books are sort of take the form of speculative ethnography where she wants to imagine how a culture could be different um, than ours. And in order to do so, she writes from the perspective of someone who is themselves trying to study and learn about it. Yeah. Um, and, yeah which is... <laughs> <laughs> you can't. You guys can't see it, but, but Brendan McBrien, the man behind our graphics, just popped into frame. <laughs> now he's gone. Now he's gone. Yeah, it's a very interesting. It's a. It's an interesting example of sort of the content and the form um, meshing 
in a interesting and productive way. Um, yeah, one of the things that I mean, the whole idea of like a a a, a, a council of worlds is not unique to sci-fi. You know, like. It exists within Star Trek and the culture series and all that stuff, but I think the way that she approaches it is very uniquely her thing. I mean, she's like, she's a really great world builder, which makes sense if you're a person that like likes anthropology because <laughs> that's what that's what it is, you know, just studying different worlds, different cultures, and so she uses that as a way to to give you a glimpse into their society. Yeah, and that this this galactic council is less a governing body and more just a, a exchange of ideas, just a way for people to talk to each other. Uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean sci-fi often builds, uh, imagines interplanetary um, forms that are based on you know things that exist on Earth. It's either, gotta have a galactic emperor. <laughs> yeah, it's either empire, but in space, or. Right. you know the military but in space or the united nations but in space and uh the league of all world worlds the ecumen is much more like the university but in yeah. space yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and i mean her father being like part of this this later stage of anthropology that kind of defined i i was i studied anthropology as a as an undergrad and there's a lot of issues behind it as a thing to study at all. Yeah. But um, her father being one of those later stage people that was like, we're not here to steal from cultures. We're just here to catalog them, and learn from them or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or they disappear for unrelated reasons. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Totally unrelated. Which um, uh, is a good way to transition into like the theme of the music that we selected for this episode, um, which uh is is ethnomusicology <laughs> essentially i for at least for the music that i that i selected or was into this whole idea there's so many i mean he was famous for recording ishi which is what the the last california native is that what his deal was ted Do you uh, know? Well, he was supposedly the last member of a particular Okay. Um, people, people or tribe, um, who just kind of wandered into town um, <laughs> once everyone else was gone. Um, yeah. And yeah. it was Ursula, and it was Ursula Guin's mother who, it was her father who sort of worked with him, trying to record um, aspects of his culture, mm-hmm. and then her mother who actually ended up writing it up. Um, maybe like a decade later after he died is what I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the documentary goes into that. Apparently he apparently the two men, her father and Ishii, like formed a very interesting and terse relationship. And but then when he died, when Ishii died, he was asked to write a book about him and her father was like, I can't. My wife will do it. <laughs> <laughs> and um and then yeah, she did. Yeah, so a lot of the music, I mean, Alan Lomax is famous, and his wife are famous for for doing just that, kind of going, traveling around, especially the southern United States, and recording um, 
music that was on the verge of disappearing or had never been recorded before. And a lot of our early American Roots music comes from them. Um, some of the music I picked comes from uh, uh, an album called Good For What Ails You, the music of medicine shows. So it's recorded between 1926 and 1937. So if, this is actually a really interesting part of American history before like movies and radio and television, there were traveling medicine shows. So um, they were, you know, pitch doctors that roamed the land and they hawked tonics and elixirs and miracle cures and they brought with them singers and dancers and comedians and banjo pickers and all that good stuff and when they died out um a lot of those early medicine show performers became to be record came to be recording stars in, in their own right mm. cool yeah. Yeah, I've got we've got some field recordings, some ethnographic field recordings of the Yurok and Tolua peoples, uh, some Inuit um, songs, throat singing, uh, some music of mushroom ceremonies, the Mazatecs. Uh, yeah, last week I realized when I was putting the music in, I realized I mentioned um, lots of music that I was going to play that did not make it into the show at all. So. <laughs> We'll see what actually gets <laughs> yeah. over the airwaves. I don't think that's terrible. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, I think we like like to keep people guessing, and also <laughs> just Google everything Ted says. Yeah, it's it's speculative curation. Like, yeah. imagine what music there could be on this we're show. Gonna, we're gonna How many times are we gonna make that, that joke one? about yeah. anything? I'm yeah. gonna do it at least fifteen more times <laughs> today. Hey there everyone, wondering why you cannot hear the music we talk about on this show? Well, that's probably because you're listening on a platform that does not allow us to play music that's not licensed. If you would like to hear the full unedited version of this show with the music that we talk about, you can find us on Mixcloud at Last Refuge of the Incompetent, or you can listen at kcsb.org Saturdays from 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific time. And for two weeks after, our show is cataloged on Radio Free America. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Last Refuge of the Incompetent. Not, <laughs> I forgot the name of our show, not the D&D podcast. That is the first thing. Yeah, it turns out there's another show. It's not on KCSB 91.9 FM in Santa Barbara. No. It's just called The Last Refuge Podcast about Dungeons and Dragons. Sounds cool. I'll, we'll plug them. And, sure. Uh, <laughs> and maybe they'll plug us back. <laughs> I don't know. How's, how's it work? Um, we might want to talk a little bit about the influences that the Ecumen and the Hainish novels had on sci fi in general, mm -hmm. namely the idea of an ansible. Um, I'm wondering if our resident um, physicist might have oh. some thoughts on it. <laughs> Me, Moses, the physics guy? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so that uh, Ansible was the, the faster than light communication. So I'm, yeah. there's no faster than light travel in the, in the Hainish cycle, right? No. Right, you Correct. and that, that often becomes a plot, I mean, that often becomes an important plot point, not only because um, it's one reason it's such a kind of loose um, 
federation of planets, right. if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, lowercase f federation. Um, yeah, doesn't uh, he get but, stranded on left hand of darkness because of that reason? Mm-hmm. Right? And yeah, yeah and the long waits. The envoys will, you know, leave their basically whenever they decide to go to another planet, they uh, have to say goodbye to everyone they know because yeah, they're they'll never see them again. They're traveling and, at relativistic speeds, so while they only age a year, their home planet goes by, you know, 100 years, that kind of thing. Right. And so, sometimes they'll, you know, they'll have studied the planet they're going to visit, and then by the time they get there, it's changed drastically because it's <laughs> 70 years later yeah. uh, or what have you. Um, yeah. It's tricky. I've read like all of her Hainish novels, but they're all blending into each other right now. So like, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't help that they're not set. They're the chronological order. They're written is totally different from the chronological order. Well, she um, did. There's a, there's a thing on her website where she's, people are asking her questions and it's called Ursula on Ursula. Um, She's really, she's, she's a very funny woman. And she was like, if you want to read the Hainish Ekumen cycle, um, the thing is they aren't a cycle or a saga. They, they have no coherent history. There are some connections between them, but they're murky and there are a lot of discontinuities. So like you can <laughs> just, read them in any order. That you just want. like the real world. Yeah. <laughs> you, bet yeah. You, can, you can tear out all the pages and, from all the books and then glue them back in any order you want. Yeah. <laughs> She's not like um, precious about her writing, which is cool. She was like, yeah. uh, I have to warn you that the planet Whirl in Four Ways is not the planet Whirl in Planet of Exile. In between novels, I forgot planets. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's cool. Uh, but yeah, her thing, the Ansible, the faster than light communication at the speed of thought, which somehow goes through the fabric of the universe. Uh, cool idea and definitely makes a lot of sci-fi plots possible. Uh, physically, I think it would still lead to violations of causality, so I wouldn't look forward to it happening in the future, but it's great. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, she first talks about it in Rokanan's world, which I think is... That's the one I haven't read. First. You haven't read that one? No. I have. Yeah, it's the very first one she published. Yeah, it's the first one she published in 1966, and I guess it comes from the word answerable. Hmm. That's so. <laughs> wow. That's kind of a. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, but what, what other? So I know that the Ansible shows up in other authors' sci-fi. So it's in yeah. Orson Scott Card's Ender's series. Yep. Yeah, it's in um, Kim Stanley Robinson's Twenty Three Twelve. It's in Becky Chambers' The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, which is a really good book. I would recommend. And I feel like they're all using it just because they love Ursula so much. Like, it's clearly very yeah. homage. homage Yeah. I mean, you get the impression that she was very well liked within her community. Uh, Gal, you brought this clip of her speaking at a, what is it, an award ceremony? Yes. So one of the things that became really big about her is, well, if people aren't familiar with the idea of like the hierarchy in within the literary world where like speculative fiction writers or genre writers Mm -hmm. like sci-fi fantasy or whatever they have like a very they're not literary and so she she i think it was in 2014 got the National Book Award Foundation Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters, which was a really big deal because it was like this publishing world recognizing her as being literary. 
right? And, um, you know, she would been relegated. She couldn't, she, no one was publishing her when she first started. And she then she just slipped into this genre world that like really embraced her. And so she had a lot of like strong feelings about how terrible this publishing world is. And so this, um, this speech is, you know, she's this little old lady and she <laughs> steps up and she just destroys all these publishers um, in the audience. And she just, the, the whole industry and the business of publishing and then walks off. She's got <laughs> awesome. So let's, uh, let's listen to a clip of that and we'll put the link on the, on the site. And I rejoice in accepting it for and sharing it with all the writers who were excluded from literature for so long, my fellow authors of fantasy and science fiction, writers of the imagination, who for the last 50 years watched the beautiful wars go to the so-called realists. <laughs> I think hard times are coming when we will be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now and can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being, and even imagine some real grounds for hope. We will need writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, the realists of a larger reality. Right now, I think we need writers who know the difference between production of a market commodity and the practice of an art. <laughs> developing, developing written material to suit sales strategies in order to maximize corporate profit and advertising revenue is not quite the same thing as responsible book publishing or authorship. <laughs> Thank you, brave applauders. <laughs> Yet, I see sales departments given control over editorial. I see my own publishers in a silly panic of ignorance and greed charging public libraries for an ebook six or seven times more than they charge customers. We just saw a profiteer try to punish a publisher for disobedience, and writers threatened by corporate fatwa. And I see a lot of us, the producers, who write the books and make the books, accepting this, letting commodity profiteers sell us like deodorant and tell us what to publish and what to write? Well, <laughs> I love you too, darling. <laughs> 
books, you know, they're, they're not just commodities. The profit motive is often in conflict with the aims of art. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art, and very often in our art, the art of words. I have had a long career and a good one, in good company. Now here, at the end of it, I really don't want to watch American literature get sold down the river. We who live by writing and publishing want and should demand our fair share of the proceeds. But the name of our beautiful reward is not profit. Its name is freedom. Thank you. Um, yeah, where were we? Uh, we were talking about Ursula's effect on other writers and then also yes. her place in the publishing industry. And so that led us to that clip. Yeah. Um, it's funny how she, like, is pretty fairly she's very re reflective on her space within writing and she's uh, like uh, she she's one of those people that like accepts when she makes mistakes which is really interesting um her earthsea novels which people don't know about earthsea it was like the very first ya fantasy series like written I mean, it was the first one that was like specifically made for young adults. And it's the first time that you'll see like this ubiquitous idea of, um, of a wizarding school, right? Because mm -hmm. that's like what it's about. And, you know, without Earthsea, you wouldn't have Harry Potter and without, it, you know, the magicians or whatever. And there was, she wrote it, uh, fine. She wrote it in 1968, the first novel she wrote in 1968. Then she wrote, three more like in the 70s or two more in the 70s and then mm -hmm. she didn't write another one until 1990 and you know she was this like female writer in the 70s and in the 70s there was a lot of like really weird feminist radical feminist writing coming out for science fiction writing coming out and there was a, like critique of her novels being like why like they, they weren't feminist the earth mm -hmm. series wasn't feminist it was like you know, she even admitted it herself. She was like, I just couldn't imagine in 1968 a main protagonist wizard being female. And then in the night, in like, did like reflection on her writing and on herself. And then 1990 being like, no, you're right. I didn't write a feminist novel. And let me figure out how to change this, you know, which is yeah. what. Uh, I hadn't read any of the Earthsea stuff. And then I saw the, um, that documentary, The Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin, where she talks about that. And that made me really want to read those. And so I finally did just read the first one. Uh, and in the afterward to that, she said, she does some reflection where she says, you know, I wanted to sneak in 
a few things into this book. I knew it was going to be conventional in some ways, but I tried to make it unconventional in other ways. So it's conventional in the ways that here's, you know, there's a kind of hero's quest, like somebody kind of trying to grow up and discover their power. Uh, but right. she tried to sneak in race, like to make, make it not, uh, you know, make right. it easy for the reader to assume that the, all the protagonists and all the characters are white when they're not and they're later described because every fantasy protagonist, of course, is a white male. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, she leaves, she leaves in like the misogynism in this world. Like women who do magic are, are gross and weird and bad. Yeah. And uh, she didn't, yeah. Uh, so she, well, she puts those like caricatures in the book uh, and and now yes yeah, so now I really want to read the 1991 she wrote Tehanu where she goes yeah. back and says all right let's explore that like I left it there in the book kind of because I didn't want to address it because it was mm -hmm. her first first young adult one and uh, but it needed to be addressed like it's a it's part of the world building and uh, I think that yeah that's a cool reflective way to do that yeah see i don't i don't get why she couldn't instead of writing a critique of her own work why she couldn't have just like made a billion dollar movie series and then five years <laughs> later told us that dead was trans <laughs> maybe. Um. I, I was just about to mention i was like i when i was writing up my notes for this episode i was like you know without earthsea there'd be no harry potter and and like and i and, and you know i Come on, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> she, first of all, she wrote. First of all, J.K. Rowling's being a turf and a terrible person is a bad thing. Second of all, when you really read Harry Potter, the main character is a boy. And there's like, sure, Hermione exists, but like, dude, Ursula Kellogg already did this. She already went yeah. over the reflection. Like, you could just make your main character Hermione and get over it. Anyway. Yeah, talking about Earthsea being the first YA novel and listening to that clip from her acceptance speech, um, talking about, you know, writers just allowing publishers to tell them what to write, mm -hmm. um, what can be sold. Right. It's interesting, but like, you know, what they can, what publishers can sell is in large part based on the uh, sort of archetype she established with Earthsea. Yeah, in some sense, for sure. So she does. In that section, Ursula on Ursula on her, on her website, she addresses like how words are pronounced. She's such a, she's such an anthropologist. She's got like a mm -hmm. whole section about how like you're supposed to say certain things. Um, and she talks about how like some ad adaptations of her writing have not necessarily stuck to how certain words are supposed to be said. And she mentions Ursi being like, um, I guess they made it into a animated series or something. I don't, I don't really know. There's been one or two uh, like TV miniseries adaptations. Okay, uh, there yeah. was also like a Gigli. Uh, one of the Miyazakis directed a oh, really? an animated one. Yeah, not not the famous, the most famous Miyazaki even. Well, she does say, she was like, well, one of the things that they do is they like, oh yeah, they mispronounce one of these words, but it's not as bad as the fact that they like put this black character in an island of white people, which is like ridiculous because why would that, it's an, <laughs> she like explicitly mentions race in this book and, yeah. and you know. 
Yep, and yeah. they made them all anime white. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So Hayao Miyazaki's son, uh, Goro Miyazaki, directed Tales from Earthsea, which is a Studio Ghibli movie right. from 2006. And that's a Wikipedia Corner with Chad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm totally spacing out on, there was one like early fantasy novel that Ursula listed as one of her big influences, but I can't remember the name at all. So anyway, we'll put it, I'll, I'll find it and put it in the links for the show. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a fantasy noob. Noob. I'm, I tend to not gravitate towards it. I think I, nub, I think I had like traumatic experiences as a kid because my, Everybody in my family was like, you gotta read Lord of the Rings, it's so good. And then mm -hmm. I, I could never, I didn't like it. <laughs> um, my extent of fantasy was the like Redwall series that was like... <laughs> Ooh, you know which one I loved was um, the, the rabbit one. I always mix it up with Wuthering Heights, the name, but it's Watership Down. <laughs> oh, you love, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's quite a story. <laughs> You know, just a fun adventure for kids. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> what is what is it an allegory for? It's it, it's like a watership down. Uh, I mean, there's a, certainly environmentalist themes of the rabbits are getting their hope, the humans are killing their habitat, and they have to go on this journey to find a new one. Okay. I don't have the most nuanced yeah. reading of that book. I just really like the one rabbit who takes psychedelic mushrooms and writes cool poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, go ahead, Ted. Well, yeah, speaking of Ursula, Quinn, Ursula Le Guin being influential, uh, so yeah, there's Earthsea as a as the prototype YA series. Um, there's borrowing the Ansible um, mm -hmm. in other works. Uh, although, I mean, I think Ender's Game, uh, some of the later novels um, where he sort of goes off to another planet um with the native population and tries to make amends oh, yeah, and everyone yeah. is brazilian for some reason oh, so there's a lot of <laughs> there's a thinking of rereading or reading Le Guin again now um, for the show definitely made me realize how much Le Guin is in those novels as well yeah. uh, other than just the ansible which is mm -hmm. it's interesting that this kind of uh conservative mormon guy um, could be so influenced <laughs> by this West Coast, Berkeley, Portland, mm. hippie woman. Um, I yeah. wonder how he feels about that. Um, <laughs> but also, uh, uh, so there's another um, Hainish Cycle book uh, we haven't discussed, which is the word, the word for world is forest. Uh, that's um, a good one. Which doesn't get talked about as much as Left Hand of Darkness yeah. or The Dispossessed, but um as a sort of vietnam war allegory about environmental destruction and yeah. ecocide and genocide mm. um in pursuit of profit uh people talk about it being influential on avatar um as avatar being kind of like a blockbuster version of that huh. so uh also i think the ewoks from return of the jedi are yeah very... yeah yeah because of the the oh, yeah. Athsians are like little small sort of mm -hmm. greenish yeah. fur people. Oh, I'm remembering it now. That was a good book. Yeah. The piggies. I'm sorry, that's yeah. a slur. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that was a... Because it's like a war... It's very clearly like a Vietnam War um, allegory, as far as I'm remembering it, right? Like, there's the weird, like... Um, 
Yeah, Terrans come to this planet to yes. um, to basically log it um, because Earth ran out of trees. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there, and the the native species is very peaceful and um, right. End up learning to do violence, resisting yes, yes. force. Yes, and it's like very guerrilla warfare sort of allegory. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was a good book. Um, don't they, they learn it through dreaming? Is that, is that in this, is that the same thing in the book where, or it's the gift of, they learn these gifts through collective dreaming or something like that? Maybe not. Yeah, there is, it's been like 15 years, but there is some <laughs> yeah. kind of, um, yeah, collective unconscious. Yes, unconscious yeah. that they have. I think we have the best kind of book club show possible. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Where we talk about books mo- the listeners haven't read, but we vaguely recollect them for yeah. so. Welcome back to Things I May Remember. <laughs> <laughs> That's not necessarily true. There are some stuff that we can speak heavily on and yes. some things that we just throw away. Yeah, yeah Earth, <laughs> the first Earth seems real fresh for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, well... The Blade of Heaven is real fresh for me. Yeah. Because I just watched the film. The 1980 film. For, which public, was for public television. <laughs> Chef's and Kisses. It was so good. It was really yeah. good. It's on YouTube. And I just read Blade of Heaven for the first time recently. Oh, there so we go. Shall we talk about Blade of Heaven now? I would love to. But let's, let's play some music. Okay. Let's play some Great. music. And I'm while we play music, I'm going to use the restroom. <laughs> All right. Leaving that in. <laughs> talk a bit about the lathe of heaven uh ted mentioned uh uh taoism earlier being an expert in it i'm throwing you under the taoist carpet there (laughs) i said her okay to defend myself (laughs) i said her her translation was a good translation for the lay reader and i'm a lay reader yeah i'm an expert in taoism i I just said it it came out as i'm an expert and that lady is a (laughs) dummy I don't think, I think that was a facial expression thing. The listeners will not have picked up on it. Also, I realized I just said I threw Ted under the Dallas carpet. Maybe I meant the Dallas bust, but I guess they're all the same in this worldview. Uh, the Lathe of Heaven. It's a book about a guy whose dreams change the world. Uh, and he's terrified of this power because he has no control over it, really. Uh, yeah. And so he becomes this figure who is just, yeah, terrified of changing the world. Uh, like, the fear is totally reasonable at first because some of his dreams cause people to cease to exist, so he feels like he actually killed them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it leads up to just him, his whole philosophy is now, like, I need to be at peace with the world. Like, it's a, it's a crime for me to change a single blade of grass, really. 
and he goes to a psychiatrist and oneirologist, guy who studies dreams, uh, to try to get him to stop dreaming. And the psychiatrist discovers that he has this power and then says, oh, I'll use this guy's power to change the world because well, there are a lot of problems in the world and I should change them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he, the psychiatrist embraces the power and uh, the book is about that dynamic of uh, you know, how much responsibility do you take for the power you know, yeah. in the, in the Spider-Man phrase of great power, <laughs> great responsibility, mm -hmm. because yeah, at times, uh, the dreamer, George Orr is, is too complacent. Uh, and the psychiatrist, uh, Haber, Dr. Haber mm -hmm. is, is too, uh, uh, he uses it to the power to cavalierly. Right. And they're dreams too, right? So they're unpredictable. What yeah, what yeah. He, he can't, he, they never get full control over it. So every change right. they make has unintended consequences and in a kind of monkey's paw way. And race has a, a part in, in this world. I, th so this yeah. world is different than some of her other books because it's, um, as she Earth. says, Terran. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, not, it's Earth. Yeah. It's so, well, kind of like in present day, really, it could be said in any present day. And it's yeah. slightly different. Like yeah. it, in the way the book starts out, the social system seems like there's a great welfare system where anybody can get medical help if they need it. That seems like the biggest difference. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's much like our own Earth, except it's Portland. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's Portland, yeah. <laughs> the world for Earth is Portland. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one... Moses and I, and not Ted, which is unfortunate, Ted, because it's a really good adaptation. We watched um, the nineteen eighty film adaptation of it, and what's really cool about this film adaptation is that it was a PBS funded experiment in can we adapt sci-fi or speculative fiction into into film. Um, and uh, it's these two directors that worked as a team: David Loxton and Fred Barzik. Um, and Le Guin also was like heavily involved in the casting and the planning and the writing and filming of it. And they had about $250,000 to make a movie as like, it, like aliens invade Earth <laughs> at, some point in, <laughs> at some point in this movie. Um, and it was pretty fun to see how they do it. Um, and it's really well acted. So the film stars like Bruce Davison, who like you've probably seen in, in stuff. He was in um, Willard and uh, what else? He was in the X-Men franchises. He, he was like, a, he's an actor whose face is very familiar. And um, the movie's really good. Yeah. The movie's great. Uh, the, his love interest is Margaret Avery, who I believe is um, a musician. Heather Lalash, <laughs> and Kevin Conway plays the doctor, and um, it's really it's really good. And those guys went on to make two more of those like PBS films. One of them is called Between Time and Timbuktu, which is based on Kurt Vonnegut's work, but like kind of written for by Kurt, with Kurt Vonnegut's help for the screen. And apparently, Kurt Vonnegut was like. Uh, no, I don't want anybody to watch this like <laughs> after it came out and then the other one is called 
Overdrawn at the Memory Bank, which is based on a short story by John Varley. I'm currently in the middle of watching it, and it stars Raul Julia, and it is so good. Um, and Mystery Science Theater did did uh, one of their things on it. Did you say that Raul Julia plays an iguana in it? An orangutan. <laughs> An orangutan. At some point, yes, he does. He voiceovers <laughs> himself as a an orangutan. I think her name is like Dottie or something like that. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and, it, and it's just video of like National Geographic footage of an orangutan, and he's like, oh, oh it's, <laughs> it's hard to walk. Raul Julia anyway. was such a consummate professional. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the movie sure. certainly, you know, it's low budget. I have the Lathe of Heaven movie, and sure, there's plenty of stock footage of rockets patched in there. Yeah. Uh, but it does a, a great job of the dream sequences are really creative and, and a nice way to translate uh, his power at work uh, into a visual way. And yeah, uh, yeah there's a, they do a great job of, of this shifting reality uh, ambience. Uh, part of that for me, this is not like intentional on the film director's part, but because they were just, you know, they had access to the cameras they had access to, uh, and it was 1980, and there's a bunch of like ghosting because I think it's like those, uh, I forget that CCD cameras or something, but bright lights like leave trails on the screen, and this might have been an artifact of um, like the original stock was lost, and so they only had the video transfer. Mm. Uh, either way. To modern eyes, it it looks like a strange dream, shifting in and out of reality. It does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you think, Ted? For your first time reading the book. Um, so yeah, with the central relationship between the Bruce Hoare, the dreamer, and a psychologist, um, it's definitely it's an opposition that comes up all in a lot of her books, which is sort of the opposition between positivistic scientific knowledge and kind of intuition dreams uh traditional knowledge um oh yeah i wanted to bring up that the the doctor's name haber is clearly named after the, the haber process the guy who invented the way to manufacture uh ammonia which led to being able to manufacture fertilizer which increased crop yields by like four times in the early 20th century uh, she, and so in many ways that is like Haber has been called the, uh, the scientist responsible for, you know, the biggest uh, effect on humanity. Like, well, it increased the carrying capacity of Earth by billions of people. She does a, I mean, we'll talk about the dispossessed next, but the main character there, Shevik, is based on, I guess, I guess her parents were friends with Robert Oppenheimer. Hmm. And so like, like, that's who she based that character off of. Uh, but yeah, overpopulation comes up a bunch in the book, and so that is like, I feel like it's a pretty stark. Uh, yeah, it also, uh, it predicts the effects of climate change, I think, pretty pretty well for being written in 71 70, or 70, 72. 73, I think. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, and <71. laughs> yeah, so we're... So it's one of those oppositions that comes up a lot in her work um, and including like, you know, country versus city, um, kind of East versus West. And she's generally a partisan of, you know, intuition, traditional knowledge, 
the east, um, the countryside. But um, she, I mean, it's never just, you know, complete partisanship. Mm-hmm. Um, George Orr is kind of like her, her Taoist superhero. Um, George Orr, George Orr. George Orr. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, also uh, calling back, or named after George Orwell, just to throw in some dystopias in there. Yeah. But he's, he's described in the text as being sort of this, um, this block who isn't changed by, or isn't changed by the outside world. He's sort of totally equanimous and just goes with the flow, um, which is kind of this Taoist ideal. But he also, you know, eventually he has to actually act and make a decision to stop the psychiatrist from using his effective dreams to um, change the world too much um, with too much of a directed intention. Um, but it, it, to me, the work brought up the issue of like, well, how do you really know? Like you can say you should just go with nature, with a Tao, um, but how do you, how exactly do you make that distinction between the natural that is just the way things should go and decisions you make. Um, yeah, I like the part of the book where George struggles, maybe you're about to bring it up, uh, where George struggles with that idea of like, he's saying, stop changing everything to the doctor. And the doctor says, how, how could you say that, right? If you saw a man, you know, trapped under a tree in the woods, would you just walk past him? It's your duty to help. Right, right. And, and later, yeah, his, George says okay. like, okay, yeah, obviously I got to help one guy, but the whole world is too many. Right. <laughs> It's different, but I can't tell you why exactly. Yeah, I can't tell you why or where. Like, where's the line? She, she has a really great quote where she's like, uh, I don't know if I'm going to say it correctly, but she was like, I'm a, I'm a part-time pr- practitioner of Taoism, but a full-time non-practitioner of Christianity or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, to me, the heaven was kind of, it's about the contradiction of Le Guin being kind of a, a revolutionary Taoist mm-hmm. um, where mm-hmm. she, she wants, you know, a radically different system, but she also believes in like nonviolence and just going with the flow. So, you know, how do you get from, yeah. right. How do you get radical change without changing things? Um, so uh, good, uh, maybe a good transition to talk about the dispossessed, um, yeah. I, from what I remember, like one of the reasons she, it's so it's cool when you read her books and you have her like reflections on her books and they're usually like very mm-hmm. well like thought out. So from what I remember, she was like, there's two reasons why she wrote The Dispossessed. So Dispossessed is this ambiguous utopia or, and that's the, the quote unquote, the subtitle to it. Right, the dispossessed and ambiguous utopia. So, a bleak moon settled by utopian anarchists has long been isolated from other worlds, including its mother planet. Which, from my understanding, it was like Earth, and then someone went to the moon. Like a bunch of anarchists went to our moon and yeah. populated it. A basically. slightly more hospitable version of our moon. <laughs> right. Um, so, and in this utopian anarchist place, it's. Um, there's this scientist, physicist, who's based off of Oppenheimer, who wants to reunite the two planets um, who've been divided by centuries of distrust. And he's basically goes down there and 
sees like why people left, but at the same time sees like some good in there. And it's like a really interesting, he struggles with his own life on his planet. Um, and so from what she was writing about, she was, she basically said she was reading all these utopias and people kind of trash on utopias because they're these, they're these like perfect worlds that don't exist and mm-hmm. they're hard to make interesting. And she was like, how can I make an interesting and real utopia? And so she, she also was, you know, writing at the time of the Vietnam War and she was trying to figure out like what would a, what would an anarchist utopia look like? Um, mm-hmm. And then what did she wrote? Uh, I'm just going to read this quote. So the dispossessed started as a very bad short story, which I didn't try to finish, but couldn't quite let go. There was a book in it and I knew it, I knew it, but the book had to wait for me to learn what I was writing about and how to write it. I needed to understand my own passionate opposition to the war that were endlessly, it seemed, waging in Vietnam and endlessly protesting at home. At home. If I had known then that my country would continue making aggressive wars for the rest of my life, I might have had less energy for protesting that one. But knowing only that, I didn't want to study war no more. I studied peace. I started by reading a whole mess of utopias and learning something about pacifism and Gandhi and nonviolent resistance. This led me to the nonviolent anarchist writers such as Peter Kropkin and Paul Goodman. With them, I felt a great immediate affinity. They made sense to me in the way Lao Tzu did. They ended... They enabled me to think about war, peace, politics, how we govern one another and ourselves, the value of failure and the strength of what is weak. So when I realized that nobody had yet written Anarchist Utopia, I finally began to see what my book might be. And I found that its principal character, whom I'd first glimpsed in the original Misbegotten Story, was alive and well. (laughs) Done. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I like the, it paints a great, uh, again, anthropological picture of how people relate to each other on this, on the moon, on the moon, uh, <laughs> where they, they have a system for assigning people work and, uh, and uh, working together without, in a non-hierarchical way, kind of. Uh, and then he kind of gets a, in a sense, he wants a research scholarship to go study with the physicists on the main planet. Uh, and he, there he sees all the you know, the luxuries and the depravities of capitalism. Yeah. And one thing related to her, uh, you know, her anti-war stance there is that she doesn't uh, portray the the anarchist utopia as totally nonviolent. Like it has plenty of violent people and they have, you know, militias. He's like, rocks are thrown at him, right? When he's trying to leave. People are so mad at him. They think that... uh, yeah, him going to visit the old planet is just an attempt to sabotage their entire society. So yeah. there's violent uprisings against him like that. Uh, but he, so then he goes to the uh, the main planet and sees where their military is very much like the American military. It is the American military. Of, yeah. uh, and they all the, he you know, meets with the generals and all the generals say, it's got to be this way. We have to have this structure. We need all these people to follow orders immediately because there's just no time to think. Yeah. And Shevik says, what are you talking about? Thinking is great. It works great for, you know, all the people up on our moon. Uh, and then there's a scene later in the book that's, you know, stuck with me real bad, where there's a big protest in the in the main city uh, and the military just flies over it and opens fire on it. And at yeah. that moment, Shevik says, like, oh, I realized that's what, that was the entire purpose of training people to obey orders without questions it's just so you could put down pro- nonviolent protesters easily and right. just have them murder citizens like that 
And I've read this book right around when Trump was elected, so I felt pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, as a as a writer from the six of the sixties and seventies, um, a lot of her work is sort of ba- positioned as being against both sides of the Cold War. Um, mm. She's not terribly sympathetic to you know like the Marxist socialist alternative, and she tends to. Um, kind of collapse both into collapse both like the capitalist system and the state socialist system into kind of one um, positivistic, mm-hmm. over scientific, industrialized um, thing. So, but uh, in the dispossessed, the world, the society, Shevek visits, Shevek. yeah, um, is yeah, is this. Um, very capitalistic, extremely property-based hierarchical society. Um, But the other half of the planet is controlled by something that's obviously more of a stand-in for the Soviet Union. Yeah, Um, I remember that. And and it's definitely criticized as well, but it's, I feel like she's actually more sympathetic to it in that work than some of other works. Um, Because Shevek does uh, sort of come to realize that he has to work with that side as well if he's yeah. to um, try to affect a change in the society because um, they are sort of connected to, already connected to the you know, working underclass that he's trying to organize. Yeah, yeah. For, like completely forgot about that aspect of it. Yeah. She's so good at creating <laughs> complicated worlds. Yeah, and Shevik acts like a jerk a bunch of the book also. Yeah, <laughs> like he acts he, almost like like a petulant child. Yeah. Uh which is just part of his character that is necessary. But also yeah, he really embarrasses himself at a party. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess it's one way to phrase that scene. <laughs> which I which I won't describe. Uh, So earlier we mentioned this book that we all didn't read, but um, <laughs> but I, but I feel like it's worth mentioning. So in 1985, right after her mother's death, I think both of her parents had died by then. She kind of had this return to her like native homeland. So she grew up in Berkeley, but her family had a land in Napa and um so she kind of like went back and had this profound experience there and she wrote this book that I, I really want to read now but it's called Always Coming Home Music and Poetry of the Kesh it is the most blatant ethnographic piece that she's written because it is a made-up ethnography <laughs> basically um she she comes up with a uh, a people, so it's a, a rich and complex interweaving of story and fable, poem, artwork, and music. So th- there's also a, an audio track that goes with it. Um, and 
creates this world of the Kesh. They're a peaceful people. It's a utopia again um, in a far future who inhabit a place called the Valley. Um, and it's in the Northern Pacific coast. Um, and it's, you know, narrative, pseudo textbook, pseudo anthropologist record. And one of the reasons why a lot of the music we chose um, is essentially ethnography or ethnographic recordings. Um, yeah. yeah it sounds interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have never gotten around to reading Always Coming Home, but uh, I've had this album um, that she invented, sort of fu invented future folk music that she created for quite a while. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll play you guys a snippet of that as well. And yeah, it's, you know, you've got, you've got the, these folk songs, but you've also got this great kind of 80s synth um, <laughs> on a lot of it. It's a wonderful document of its own time. Uh, so then there's also, I had no idea this existed. And I, the internet is not very familiar with it either. Rigel, Rigel, I don't know, I'm so bad with words. <laughs> Rigel 9. So I guess Liquid wrote a space opera with like an actual opera. Um, wow. Not not yeah, she, she wrote kind of, yeah, she wrote basically the lyrics or I don't yeah. know, is libretto the opera term for it? But I'm, yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, with the for this sort of it. prog rock space opera. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that came out in 1985 and it was the composer is David Bedford and it tells the story of an astronaut who isn't quite sure where home is. So it's like, I guess three astronauts named Anders, Capper, and Lee are sent to explore a strange world. Of course they are. Mm -hmm. um, after Anders goes off to collect a plant sample and is kidnapped by extraterrestrials, Capper and Lee argue about whether to rescue him or save themselves. In the end, Anders is faced with a difficult choice. Anyway, I listened to some of it today. <laughs> and it's, it's it is from the 1980s, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's not bad. We'll play a little bit of it. Yeah, that'll be exciting. <laughs> yeah. All right, music break. Yeah. Very special. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to Focus Bird for providing us with all the music that you hear in between our dumb talking. Um, you should go check her out on Bandcamp. Focus Bird is one word, and she is awesome. gentlemen and ladies <laughs> and everyone in between and uh, anybody that doesn't oh yeah, exist the, in that scope <laughs> what was the name of the planet in left-handed darkness it was just called ice but it was it's just called winter in winter. english yeah. but i think it's also called gathen yes um, all you gathenians who you know yeah. <laughs> phase in and out of I mean, whatever yeah. 
women, you... men, and Gathenians. Those are the only <laughs> people who are allowed to listen to our show. Um. Uh, Ted, do you want to take us into the telling? Uh, yes. Um, so the telling is a book in the um, Ecumen novel series, which isn't a series, as she told us. <laughs> um, but it, I don't think she'd written any books in that series for quite a while when the telling came out in 2000. And it's the last, there may be some short stories that came out after that, but it's the last novel in that series that she wrote. Yeah. And uh, yet again, the protagonist is um, basically an, an ethnographer um, <laughs> who comes from Earth to this planet that while she was in transit from Earth to this planet, um, they basically had a, a revolution based on, because they learned about the, you know, these other planets and spacefaring, they had a revolution that sort of created a new society based on um, commodity production and scientific knowledge that set out to, you know, burn all the old books and outlaw traditional yeah. society, oh, no. um, which is the stuff she studied w when she was still on Earth. And then when she gets there, it's sort of all been yeah. suppressed. Um, so she's an ethnographer trying to learn about this half-disappeared society. Um, and, uh, and there you really see the anthropology background come together with her kind of eccentric Taoist system building. Mm -hmm. um, because the character is trying to figure out what this traditional religion is and she goes through various definitions and oh earth is a the earth she grew up in is also had been run by like a world theocratic state um so she's yeah. tr she also has this um like she sort of hates and fears religion theocracy for good reasons um, yeah. but she's trying to figure out what this religion is and she goes through many different definitions and she ends up deciding it's not really religion and the definition she settles on basically is sort of the anthropological definition of culture um, <laughs> itself um, it's the whole yeah it's basically an integrated cultural system where um, language and uh you know medicinal uh herbal knowledge and uh you know physical practice um and spirituality are completely non-separated um right. so you see yeah you kind of finally see that the system that Le Guin has been um kind of trying to build over her life is sort of the ideal of culture itself, I think. Yeah, that was a good book. I remember, again, everything is bleeding into each other. Of course, good. Point, which is great. Acceptable. But um, one of the things that's like, she's, Le Guin talks about like, always being a writer, which I think is, a, I think is one thing I, find annoying which which I and I know and that's just me being judgmental but um 
like people ask her like when did you know you want to be a writer and she was like I didn't know I want to be a writer I always was a writer anyway uh like words and language are really important to her and um you you see that thread throughout all of her writing and you know from Earthsea where the the language of uh, magic is knowing the right language for things and the telling being this like the, the telling is their is their oral tradition essentially right um and uh I found that, I just think that's an interesting aspect of her writing in general. Which, what are you going to yeah, do? She's literally, <laughs> she makes her living off of writing, so why is she not going to value words as the most important? Yeah, that words? is a good part of Earthsea as an allegory for knowing the world is, that's what magic is knowing the word for something in the original true language. Uh, yeah. And then once you name it, you have utter power over it in that original true language. And there was a, a a short story by uh, Ted Chang. It's in the same um, collection as the uh, the uh, the arrival or the story of your life that uh, the film arrival that, was based the movie on. Arrival was based on, and he has a story. Oh, that's a good movie. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's with Amy Adams, right? Yeah, and uh, that surprised me. I like that movie. <laughs> uh, and oh yeah, what's the actor guy in that one? Is Jeremy Renner in that one? Jeremy Renner as playing, yeah. he plays a physicist in that movie and he it, he nails it. Yeah. He's just the corniest dude. <laughs> oh yeah, the, the, his final line in that film is, it is a good movie, but I laughed so much when he's... Yeah, totally. You know, I liked it. I liked the story, but I guess I just would have liked the, I didn't, I had never read the short story, so that's... Oh, the, anyway, the short story is good. In the same collection, uh, by the same author, he has a story about... Uh, a society where uh, it's a similar kind of magic hold. So you, you know something in the true language, you 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 conjure it into being. Uh, but right. in this one, the true language is Hebrew, also. And so there's, <laughs> a, bu- there's a bunch of Jewish mysticism in there as well. It's really good. It's a really good story. Yeah. And I think he even credits uh, Ursula's Earthsea as like an influence on on that one. Yeah. It'd be hard not to credit. Yeah, what I don't know is, you know, I don't know anything much about Jewish mysticism. Is that, uh, you know, is that yeah. part was that an influence on Ursula? Did she base any of any of those those ideas oh. on the same kind of thing? But you didn't. I mean, do I, your, you didn't do your Kabbalah homework for that. <laughs> no, I know about Jewish mysticism, but I don't. I don't. I find it hard to believe that Ursula K. Le Guin knew this specific used it as an influence do you know what i mean i don't i don't think i I don't think the kabbalah is the only yeah thing that talks about numerology and words having importance do you know what i mean yeah um yeah in in the telling a lot of the narrative is this ethnographer protagonist figure trying to figure out what these words in this old language mean and she thinks it's one definition but over time decides no it really means this other thing yeah. and d- for this culture religion system she eventually decides it's called the telling because it's you know the body of its practice is just collecting books and reading them and then right. telling them so like it's an entire society that's based on storytelling and books yeah. from <laughs> a writer what do you <laughs> prove that you write what you know there you go yeah um, yeah, I feel like that was a good little intro to people that don't know much about Ursula K. Le Guin, right? Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> I, need, I need self affirmation. I need you guys to tell me <laughs> that this is okay. Uh, you want a review of the episode we just did? A plus. <laughs> oh yay! If you um, know nothing about Ursula K. Le Guin and you thought this was a good introduction to her works, please email us at thelastrefugeoftheincompetent at gmail dot com. Yeah, yeah, give us your feedback, or uh, or I don't know, just harass us, whatever. The last refuge of the incompetent <laughs> at gmail dot com. That's a real email. Oh, uh, what else? You can find us at lastrefugepod dot com. Yep, 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 yep. Yep, and, you can see uh, all this amazing art that my wonderful husband Brendan makes for each episode because he's yeah. very nice. Yeah, and we'll post links <laughs> to things we talked about. Yeah, we do post links to everything that we talked about on that website. And, and um, uh, what's next week's episode going to be about? Ooh, warm earth. <laughs> warm earth. Climate change. Yeah, and it won't just be the three of us talking. My good friend Marissa is going to join us. Who? Oh my god! Our uh, first guest. First guest. She is a Zoomer. She's of a. Were you she's of a. She's a Zoom. She's not real. She, she's just a figment of Zoom's imagination. Um, no, she's she's like uh, twenty three, so she's younger than we are. And, has it and um wait wait someone we don't know from college is gonna join us <laughs> <laughs> um she's got a uh, very smart and interesting perspective on things and great she's um i think would make a good kind she's she's reading the book specifically for the episode so uh the jg ballard one the drowned world the drowned world and the first book in um the Kim Broken Stanley Earth oh, oh, Broken Earth. That's right. No. Yeah. The fifth, the fifth, fifth season. Something? Fifth season. Fifth season. Yeah. Right. That book, I mean, that series touches on a lot of stuff. So, you know, we'll just focus on parts of it. All right, we'll probably talk about the whole thing because we're really bad at not talking about things. <laughs> <laughs> and a special, special shout out to Sarah Stanley slash Focus Bird for, uh, for really taking on the whole fact that she is an incompetier and for emailing us. Um, yeah, she was as... our first fan email. <laughs> yeah. She, the person we commissioned to do music for the show is our first fan. Yeah. And, and if you're listening college. to this not on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Of course she is. Um, and she's Focus Bird, if you're listening to this, not on the radio, she is the music that Focus you hear. Focus Bird has probably performed live on KCSB in the past. Oh, definitely. Possibly on, yeah. on yeah. all of our shows, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> Focus Bird was never on Radio Free PRT, but... Uh, yeah, she, she didn't really fit into the genre of roots music for, or, or, like, rap from... <laughs> well, she was a guest DJ on Mixtape Mojo, so there you have it. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Good night. Okay. Science fiction.